if you believed you could walk in molasses you know you just got to believe in yourself i can just wait for it to harden for like two days and then i walk on top of it exactly it took them years to get rid of that molasses yeah it did and in the summer the streets still smell of molasses that's a total lie. That's not true at all. But it sounds like it could be true. Hi, everybody. I'm Jared. And I'm Nate. And welcome back to Color in the Map. Today, we are packing our shit and getting ready to flee to Canada because we are talking about the election of 1860, aka the election that broke America. Literally broke it. Like the country literally broke apart. So it was you know, worth it all in the end, because, you know, once we got that little civil war out of our systems, things got better. What can we say? It had we to be got it out of our system. Yes, we had to get it out of our system. And once I, the civil war I, was I over, disagree. I don't I, think we got it out of our system. As recent events may have proven, maybe we didn't get all of the civil warring <laughs> out of our system. But there's um, a little ang- angst in the American people a little bit of angst left but you know we're gonna explore civil war one today all this and more coming up on color in the map from the jared Combs studios in boston massachusetts this is color in the map with jared tatro and nate colmohan Before we get into the topic at hand today, um, the major characteristics of a realignment election that we covered in our first episode, these are just some things to keep in mind as we go through. Um, There's five of them we're going to be focusing on. Look for them as we tell the story of 1860. Um, These characteristics are the election acting as a release of tension between the people and the government. Uh, a high turnout and interest among the people, a new dominant dividing issue coming to separate the electorate from each other, increased polarization among the electorate, and finally, the results associated with a major shift in policy. So also look for some parallels with today because you might be, as we were kind of talking about earlier, shocked by how much... um, the election of 1860 and the lead up to it sounds like recent events that we have gone through in this country. So um, we're going to talk about the, we're going to set up the political context of the election first, then we're gonna go through the happenings within all of the political parties that contested the election. Then we're gonna talk about the outcome and the fallout from it. And finally, we're gonna see whether or not this can be classified as a realignment election. So. The political context of the election of 1860, let's start there. So this is, um, como se dice, uh, bad, just just bad. If we really wanna understand this fully, we should probably start in the 1840s with the end of the Mexican-American War. So at the end of the Mexican-American War, we signed this document called the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which, pretty much gave us all of the territory that would become the Western United States. So all of the West Coast, all of the Rocky Mountain states, most of the plains, uh, we gained all of that from the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that 
Mexico signed over to us after we beat them in the Mexican-American War. So how does this relate to the problems that we faced in 1860, namely slavery? Um, in order to organize all that land into states, we had to decide whether or not slavery was going to be allowed in those states before we could um, actually make them into states. But on the issue of slavery itself, we had tried in this country many, many times to solve this problem through compromises. And compromises failed oh. again and again and again. They just did not solve anybody's worries or concerns or angers or general emotions about the institution of slavery. So the tension that arose out of the failure of these compromises is what would cause the boiling over in 1860. So there are a couple examples of these failed, these failed compromises. So first in 1787, literally with the writing of the constitution. So like at like the start of the country, we have this thing called the three-fifths compromise, which you may already know about it had to do with how they were going to apportion seats in congress because in the house of representatives the way that they determine how many seats a state gets is based on how like big your population is in a state right and so the southern states were like well we want to cushion how many seats we're going to get because you know obviously that'll mean we'll have more power in government so they said all right, we want our slave population to be counted as part of our population. And the North said, well, that's not fair at all because your slave population is not, they're not citizens. So that would give you excess power based on a population that can't even vote for you. So why would we do that? So the compromise that they ultimately came to was that the slaves would be counted as three fifths of a person in the population counts that would determine apportionment. So the three-fifths compromise, what it ended up doing was it, it gave the South all of the power that the North feared that they would have. It gave them an outsized amount of power because it gave them more seats than their, their voting population actually <laughs> entitled them to. In, their, in the population, yes. Exactly. Um, so that ends up with an imbalance of power in the national government. It gives the slave states way more power than they should have. Um, and then in 1820, we have this thing called the Missouri Compromise. And the Missouri Compromise is, again, it's the question of expansion into westward territory, organization of states. Are they slave states? Are they free states? What are we going to do? So the Missouri Compromise, uh, it, it tries to establish like this balancing act where it's like, all right, Missouri is going to enter as a slave state, but Maine is going to be carved out of Massachusetts. That's going to be a free state. So it's always trying to maintain the balance of power between free states and slave states. The Compromise of 1850 does the same thing. It's like California is going to be a free state, but we're going to allow other states to decide whether or not- Texas, is, Texas was a slave state. I think Texas was a slave state, yes. Not a state. Yeah. Um, every state in the Deep South, every state below, like... The Mason-Dixon line. Yeah, pretty much. Like, even states you wouldn't really even think of. Like, Maryland was a slave state. Kentucky was a slave state. The last compromise on slavery that we're going to talk about, failed compromise on slavery, is... And it's also the most important, because it, like, really builds up a lot of the 
political tension that turns into political violence that characterizes the 1860s is the Kansas-Nebraska Act. So the Kansas-Nebraska Act was introduced in 1854 by Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. And the concept that the Kansas-Nebraska Act introduced is called popular sovereignty. So what popular sovereignty is, is it pretty much says, we should allow these states to decide for themselves, these new states to decide for themselves whether or not they wanna allow slavery. So they should be able to vote, you know, have a referendum in their states on whether or not to allow slavery. Um, yeah, people didn't like this, so. <laughs> Northerners didn't like it because they it left open the possibility that there still might be slavery in the territories and Southerners didn't like it because it didn't guarantee that there would be slavery in the territories. So no one is happy with popular sovereignty. People are really upset about it. So almost as, like America can't decide whether they want slavery or not. It's almost as if like the only way that this was ever gonna be resolved was through either authoritarian dictatorship War. or through violence. <laughs> so when I was talking about how tensions were beginning to translate into political violence, um, after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, there is a period of violence in the Kansas territory where pro-slavery and anti-slavery factions are like literally having violent conflict. It's called Bleeding Kansas. Um, and this is the late 1850s. A lot of, some scholars actually say that the Civil War began in Kansas in the late 1850s um, with Bleeding Kansas. So another instance of um, violent um, outbursts as a result of slavery is um, John Brown's raid at Harpers Ferry, Virginia in 1859. John Brown was a radical abolitionist. He, and he formed a, um, a, a group, <laughs> let's call them a group of Re rebels pretty much yeah and they were their goal was to steal from the federal armory at harpers ferry virginia steal the weapons give them to local slaves and start a slave uprising in the south and take the south by storm and um of course his raid was a failure terrible failure and he was executed subsequently after his arrest but john brown and his militancy kind of symbolize how the political situation as a result of slavery was really beginning to deteriorate at the end of the 1850s. People are murdering each other in Kansas. People are storming federal armories to try and, you know, arm slaves. And you also have the Dred Scott decision in 1857, which is making things look even more dire, especially if you're opposed to slavery, because the Supreme Court rules in 1857 that literally the rights of slave owners have to be respected everywhere in the United States, even in free states. So if you are a slave owner- It doesn't owner, make any sense. It makes are, almost no sense. It literally like almost nullifies all of the laws of the free states. So the Dred Scott decision in essence says if you are if you own slaves and you take your slaves to minnesota or massachusetts or anywhere in the free united states those are still your slaves like there you can still own them in the north there are massive massive tensions going on already it's boiling into violence and also a big problem there's no national political party at this point uh, the political party apparatuses have broken down into just sections at this point, like Northern and Southern factions. 
um, because the entire issue of slavery has driven a wedge between different groups of the parties um, about how to deal with the problem. So the first party that we're gonna look into in the 1860 election is the Republican Party. So the Republican Party is still new at this point, like really new. It started in 1854. Uh, the 1860 Republican campaign is characterized by like this mass mobilization. So young men were forming these campaign groups called the Wide Awakes, which is like really a weird name, but they were called the Wide Awakes. And they would do tor torch lit marches through city streets and they would campaign for Lincoln and they were motivated. This is a quote from Grinspan, who he had a very interesting paper about this election. This generation of young men were motivated uh, to bold action by, quote, the bitter tensions and overwhelming political malaise, unquote, of their time which reminds me almost of our generation. Like we are kind of driven to bold action uh, in our political sphere through, you know, the ineffectivity of the government and also through the high stakes of the, the, the issues of the time. I fully, I, fully don't, I fully don't know what malaise means. Malaise? Oh. And is trying to figure out what that means. This is going in the podcast. Um, okay, let me define malaise real quick. So malaise is I like, no idea. it's like slowness. It's like lethargy. Um, it's, oh, it's, it's, it sounds close to molasses. I could, a malaise, oh, yes. I literally, so smart. Oh my like God. Like malaise is like a dysfunctional slowness. That's what malaise is. So anyway, back to the Republicans. Um, so the Republicans had their convention in Chicago in 19, in 19, in 1860. And the early front runner for their nomination for president was Senator William Seward of New York. And this guy was a capital Y Yankee. Like he is just like so Northern. He's so just like from the North. Like he, uh, he has connections to prominent abolitionists. He's opposed to slavery entirely. He has no Southern appeal to speak of. And also he's pretty heavily associated with the uh, really corrupt New York state legislature. So he has a bad rep uh, with that connection. So William Seward is a very regionalist sort of a choice for the Republicans, but uh, out of nowhere comes Abraham Lincoln, an ex Illinois Congressman. Uh, he was born in Kentucky, grew up in those border states. So the Republicans were kind of hoping he might have some appeal there. Um, he defended slavery where it existed in the South, but he opposed any expansion of slavery into the territories. And it's his justification for his opposition to slavery was that slavery was bad for the expansion of free labor. So he Lincoln understood that factory work, like if they allowed slavery to expand, there was going to be no hope for immigrant workers or even just working class people who were trying to make a living for themselves because if there was an option between paying your laborers nothing which was slavery or paying them a wage employers were going to find a way to pay their laborers nothing <laughs> like and so lincoln was like we need to stop this slavery thing um so even though Lincoln did try and expand the appeal of the party, the Republicans were still entirely a Northern party in 1860. So that's a very important thing to remember. The Republicans are 
a completely northern sectionalist party at this time. Yeah, that's what's going on with the Republicans. They still they sucked way less back then, but today it's well they they, they just swapped positions around the time of the Civil War. Yeah, they, they Republicans and Democrats chose like fully just like swapped all of their positions, which is a crazy thing to happen in government. It, yeah, we're, it kind of is. Just like flop beliefs. They did. Like, as, as we will see with the Democrats, when you compare the Democrats and the Republicans of 1860 with, like, now, it kind of is like they almost. So the Democratic Party of 1860, <laughs> let me just tell you, it's a complete and utter shit show. Just a disaster. Like, just a complete... Uh, I can't... I lack the words to adequately describe to you just how disastrous democratic party was in 1860 so the democrats are driven apart not based on whether or not we should have slavery they're driven apart based how slavery should expand so they're like slavery is going to exist but how will it exist how but how how much how much slavery (laughs) the answer was always more the answer was always mass yeah pretty much there were not a lot of um, anti-slavery Democrats in... Um, I don't think there were any, actually. Um, a leading contender... So the front runner for the Democratic nomination is Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. And you might remember, I mentioned him earlier, he is the guy who wrote the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He is the guy who came up with the whole concept of popular sovereignty as a means of solving the problem of slavery. So the Democrats get it in their mind to have their convention in Charleston, South Carolina, which is like literally the worst place you could have possibly ever have held a political convention in 1860. Cause everybody in Charleston is like, we should secede from the union. <laughs> like we oh, should yeah. break they were, the country. They were not happy with, with the North. And they so, were- yeah, yes, they're very unhappy. And so the Democrats are like, hey, let's go there. So that's what they do. They go to Charleston, South Carolina, and the resolutions committee at the convention, for those of you that don't know how political conventions work, the resolutions committee writes the party platform. So they write out the platform of policies on which the party is going to run. The resolution committee, they write three different party platforms, (laughs) each one giving a different stance on slavery expansion. So like one of the platforms advocated for what was called a federal slave code. So slavery would be codified nationally. Um, Every territory would have slavery protected under the law. So it was pretty much like federal protection of slavery almost nationally. Um, There was also a minority platform which advocated for uh, popular sovereignty in the territories. So that was the one that got chosen. So the minority popular sovereignty platform was the one that got chosen. And Southern Democrats were really, really not happy about that. They were so not happy that they walked out of the convention. Yeah. Yeah, they were like, damn, we're leaving. Goodbye. And so walking be- out. Because you got you guys mean. And they're like you're mean. So after those southerners walk out, there are not enough delegates at the convention to vote for 
the presidential nomination. So like the, the convention can't even continue because there's like, there's not enough people here. So, so literally they're like, okay, we're going to adjourn for six weeks and then we'll meet again for some reason in Baltimore. So they're not even going to meet in the same place. They're like, we'll see you in six weeks in Baltimore this time. So the Democrats reconvene in Baltimore in June of 1860. And from the start, it's just, it's still a shit show. They can't even decide on which delegates to allow into the convention. Like they're fighting over letting people in. So eventually all of the pro um, Stephen Douglas delegates get seated and the Southerners are really upset about that. So they're upset about pretty much everything. So again, the Southerners walk out and the rules of the convention are amended to allow two thirds of the present delegates, not all the delegates, just the ones that are actually physically in the room to vote for the presidential nomination. So even without the Southerners there, Stephen Douglas is chosen. He gets nominated for president. So, but he knows it's worthless because half of his party literally walked out wasn't even there when he got chosen so they don't like him so what do the southerners do what's their logical next step they say we're gonna form our own party we're gonna have our own platform and our own candidate so the southerners they have their own baltimore convention where they write their own platform it includes the federal slave code that we were talking about and they nominate the sitting vice president of the united states john c breckenridge for president breckenridge is He's, this was like something Sarah Palin did. Didn't she like um, make her own party and, and, and try to run for president? She threw that ball around. She never did it. She, but it was isn't, kind of, aren't, isn't one of her kids' names like Track or like something? She has some really stupid kids' names. Is, does Sarah Palin have a kid named Shrek? I don't know. It's, it's close. It's very close. We got Bristol. We got... <laughs> Bristol. My favorite is Trig. A Trig. Oh, I remember Trig. Trig. Bristol and Palin, track. I remember. Trick, Trig and Track. Trig. Track? Track. She's a kid named Track. Yeah, he's, a, he's, a, he's like 30 years old. He's bald. That's disgusting. Um, so... I don't know if Sarah Palin, I think Sarah Palin talked about doing that, but she no, they made the, the it was the, it was like the tea party or something like that. Yes, the, but that was a that they never formed into like an actual political party. They were just like a loose movement. They were like low taxes, oh, low taxes, but don't cut my Medicare like or my Medicaid. Like I, they're like lower my taxes, but don't touch Social Security. And it's like, uh, well, I and they're like don't raise taxes on the rich either. It's like, well, and don't cut the military bu uh, budget. Um, okay, I don't think you know how money works. But anyway, um, so the Democrats break apart. They have two different nominees, one Northern, one Southern. So they have Stephen Douglas is the nominee of the Northern Democrats. John C. Breckinridge is the nominee of the Southern Democrats. So they're, out of all of this melee, this mess, what do people think is the best option? Oh, Let's also let's start a fourth party. Let's start a let's have another candidate in here, and that'll that'll solve the problem. Out of all these options that are bad, we add another bad option. Mm -hmm. Yep, this party that is formed is called the Constitutional Unionist Party. So the Constitutional Unionist Party, what separates them from the bunch is that 
they are largely Southern. They're largely pro-slavery, but unlike the the Southern Democrats, they are vehemently pro-union. So the Southern Democrats, when they nominated John C. Breckinridge, they were like, hey, if shit hits the fan in this election, we might break out, we might break apart from the union. We might secede. The constitutional unionists, they say, absolutely not. Under no circumstances would we ever advocate for dissolution of the union. So there are a lot of moderate sort of old guys. Just picture a party full of old guys. I know that's hard. So, to they, so they wanted America to stay together, but they just wanted it to be the South without civil war. Well, they said, we want to make sure that actually they really didn't even enumerate, enumerate. They really didn't even specify. I'm using big scholarly annoying words. They didn't say specifically what they wanted to do even. So the constitutional unionists, this is a quote from Jansen. She had a really, really good article on this, Elizabeth Jansen. Quote, um, the constitutional unionists decided that the safest route would be a platform which did not directly address any of the issues that caused division between Northern and Southern states, <laughs> unquote. It's so fine. literally their, their only goal was to save the union. They committed themselves to the preservation of the constitution and the law. So they said that was their platform. Um, so they had, they nice. said, we're not even going to talk about the problems. So they also had their convention in Baltimore for some reason. Um, there's way too many Baltimore conventions, but they had one. Um, they reaffirmed the constitution and they nominated Tennessee Senator John Bell for president. John Bell is a slave owner. He's opposed to the expansion of slavery into the territories and he is a vehement opponent of secession. But the problem with the constitutional unionists is that because they don't have any platform to run on, they can't drum up the excitement that the Southern Democrats or the Republicans can. So the Republicans have really vehement followers like the wide awakes we were talking about earlier who are doing these torchlit processions and you have Northern and Southern Democrats that can kind of drum up the same uh, crowds. The constitutional unionists can't do that. It's, it's a party full of like, musty old men that are like let's keep this party going let's keep this union together at all costs and everybody's like well i'm really pissed so i could give a shit yeah they're like we don't need to change anything we just stay the same we keep things as they are mm -hmm. and that's and things will be fine yep no. that was their solution so that's my that's my grandparents solution to politics at the dinner table just like throw it under get rid of it i don't want to speak about it that's like the old people's solution to marriage. It's like, let's just, I'm not, let's leave it how it is. She's fine. She's okay. She's all right. We're, we're not suffering. We're not, su no, not by any stretch of the imagination. So, so, all right, here we are, November of 1860. Big four, big four coming down. Way too many candidates. Who's gonna win? Who's gonna win? What happens? So here's what happens. Can you guess? Do you know what happens, Nate? I, no, I actually don't know what happens. Abraham Lincoln wins. He becomes the president. So poggers, poggers, poggers. The Republican Party wins the election. They win every single northern state, and they also win like the northern Midwest. So they win the Northeast, the you know, Northern Midwest, all of those states that you think of as California, California. Yes, I, they do win in California, actually. Um, so they but the problem is because there's only four 
I mean, because there are four candidates, the popular vote is really split. So the Republicans win the Electoral College, but they only get 39% of the popular vote, which means that like literally 61% of the country voted for somebody else. Um, but Lincoln still wins the election. Um, so that causes... That's a fra- that sounds to me like a fraudulent election. Stop the count, am I right? Um, I think we need to stop the count. I think we need to stop the count right now. Um, so obviously, as you could probably guess, people are really um, not happy that Lincoln won um also seeing that in the south in a lot of southern states lincoln didn't even appear on the ballot so his name was not on the ballot so literally they were like okay this guy hates slavery he's gonna block expansion of slavery into the territories and i didn't even get the chance to vote against him because he wasn't on the ballot so what follows the outcome of this election is called the secession winter which expands from the winter of um, like December of 1860 into the spring of 1861. So the first state to secede from the union is South Carolina, which secedes in December of 1860. Um, The war, more states follow gradually. Um, And then the firing on Fort Fort Sumter happens in April of 1861. That is the start of the civil war. So the civil war starts really quickly after this election so i told you shit was gonna hit the fan like you know because we were talking about it earlier i mean people were getting like murdered in kansas like four years before this was even happening kansas right now (laughs) people yeah kansas is the so somebody just got shot in kansas it's the murder capital of the world didn't you know that not every state can be like the best state in the union which is of course Massachusetts, but you know, you know, I, I'm sorry. I, and New Jersey, New Jersey for life. Oh my God, don't even. Actually, I take it back. I take it back. Um, what's the best state? Because I, 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 I genuinely don't believe it's Massachusetts. Like everybody like, knows that everybody has opinions on what the worst state is, but nobody has opinions on what the best state is. Because everybody's like, oh, my state is the best. Like, Unless they're from Florida, which is objectively the worst. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, I, I really hate Florida. I, really, I also my hate Florida. Was there, and I, I despise, not not necessarily just hitting her. I don't just hate that. I also hate the environment of Florida. Yes. It's very, I'm surrounded by clammy old people from New York and New Jersey. Or I'm just surrounded by math heads. And there's no, like, one no way No in between. It. Or, or, or no. So there's, 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 there's the state of Florida, and then there's Miami. Miami is like very different from the rest of Florida. I would go. I have never been to Miami. I want to go. I've never been. Have you ever seen Scarface? No. Are you a film major? It's weird. Like, right? You would have thought I would have seen Scarface, but no, I haven't. I've never seen Borat, so. I started Borat and I couldn't finish it because like that cringe type of humor is like really hard for me to sit through. It's not cringe, but it's like, you know, messing with people. Like it's hard. I love that. I, it's like impractical jokers. I love that shit. Yeah. Where they just like, where, where, where they just like tell people to do stuff and they'll make everybody uncomfortable. I, yeah. I enjoy that. Well, Nate, we've reached your favorite part of the show. Was it a realignment? 
Let's go through the I... five questions. Let's do it. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, th I think it might have been. Okay. The, and question number one. Was the election a flashpoint or a release of tension in the public? People got murdered. People got murdered a lot. I'm going to say, I, I say yes, absolutely. The election was a release of tension um, because the election confronts the issue of slavery and it would put the country on the road to slavery's ultimate end. This would, of course, be through um, a little thing called the Civil War, uh, which would kill more Americans than any other conflict in our history combined. But the confrontation was, of course, um, you know, spurred by this election of 1860 and the election of Abraham Lincoln to the presidency. So yes, absolutely. It released that tension of not knowing what the future of slavery would look like. Um, um, number two, voter concern um, and turnout are unusually high. Um, yeah, absolutely. You saw in 1860, grassroots political organization increase really, really quickly um, the wide awakes are evidence of this with their um, sort of popularly organized and controlled demonstrations and um, torch lit processions, which I'm sure were probably kind of scary to look at. Turnout in this election was super, super high. 81% of all eligible voters voted in the election of 1860. Um, question number three, a new dominant dividing issue replaces an old one. Um, yes, this did happen. The issue of slavery following the events of the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, that was going to be settled in the United States. So it took construction, took five years um, for it to be settled and for the war to end, but it was eventually going to be settled. So a new issue had to replace slavery as the dominant issue. And you'll see that civil rights for African Americans and other economic questions come to fill that void in the 60s and late 60s and the early 1870s. Um, number four, the electorate is incre increasingly polarized in the lead up to the election. Um, yeah, I think that is pretty self-evident seeing as people were getting like hacked to death in certain areas of the country. Um, you know, Charles Sumner was beaten on the floor of the Senate. Um, you also saw like different uh, political parties splintering into smaller, more sectional political parties because they were so polarized over the issue of slavery. Um, who was beaten on the floor of the Senate? I do not, I don't remember hearing about that. Oh, Charles Sumner, who was the Senator from Massachusetts. He delivered an anti-slavery speech on the Senate floor in 1856 and Preston Brooks, who was a congressman. Well, in the speech, Sumner had insulted a fellow member of the Senate. And okay. Preston Brooks was a congressman uh, and he was the nephew of the Senator that Charles Sumner had insulted. And so he marched into the Senate chamber and beat Sumner with a cane, <laughs> like caned him, uh, unconscious. <sighs> beat him literally within an inch of his life. Sumner was out of the Senate. He had to take six years off from the Senate because of his injuries. Uh, yeah, you'll have to ask Charles Sumner or uh, yeah. he's dead. I, I want to see somebody, yeah. politics need to be entertaining like that again. If like, if I turned on like C-SPAN and I saw somebody getting beat the fuck up on the Senate floor, I would keep C-SPAN on. Okay, like, but the only problem is that that probably signals that like a civil war is pretty imminent. If people are getting beaten up, in the chambers of Congress. Yeah, there, there, was, there was like an insurrection. There was an insurrection, that's true. Um, 
So we'll yeah, that could be signal president of the United States. What? That could, you're, the the insurrection could signal civil war more clearly than a cane beating, but who knows? And our fi- oh, our final question was it a realignment? Here we go. Election the election of 1860 resulted in um, a major shift in policy. Obviously, yes. The election of Lincoln violence causes change in yes. policy. It was associated with the unequivocal. Um, outlawing of expansion of slavery in the uh, into the territories and this change in policy ultimately led to secession in the civil war so so we checked all of the boxes with this election so this election was hugely 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 consequential maybe the most consequential election in our history um it changed the concept of who was considered a citizen in the united states um it created a party system that would be dominated by Republicans for the next 70 years, pretty much, because Republicans were in power with very little interruption between 1860 and 1932. Um, if the election of 1860 isn't a realignment, I don't think there is any such thing, to be honest with you. Um, <laughs> if you're like me and you're uncomfortable with the number of similarities, between this election and the one we just went through. Um, Zillow has some really great listings in the suburbs of Montreal. So I can send out the link if you guys would like to see that. Um, I'm going to New Zealand. I don't know about I like Yacinda Ardern. She's the um, prime minister there. She's a cool gal. Sweet lady, sweet lady. I want to go to the seed bank. I'm going to sit in the seed bank, see what's going on in there um i think that's it that's all we have i think so yeah 1860 was a bad year for everybody i'm really glad i wasn't alive i also would have been stoned to death for being a homosexual but like you know i don't know if they stoned people like that maybe they would have like i don't know burned you at the stake i was just gonna say set me on fire yeah yeah they could have done that they had a couple of options so yeah, to dispose with me uh, for buggery and sodomy. Buggery. Sodomy. Buggery. All that cool stuff, you know. Um, so that is all that we have for today's episode of Color in the Map. Next time, we're going to be talking about the election of 1896, um, which is probably the most obscure election that we're going to talk about on this show. I'm going to try and describe it as quickly as I can right now. Um, Picture what it would look like if Bernie Sanders was a Kansas farmer that like really loved silver coins. And that's about half the story right there. So if you can imagine that, then you can pretty much imagine the election of 1896. Cause it's, yeah, just like Kansan Bernie. And he's like, where are my coins? Like that's, that's it. That's the whole story. You'll have to tune in for the other half though, because That's as much as I'm going to go through right now. I'd like to thank my co-host, Nate, and all of you for tuning in. For a full list of our sources that we use for this episode, please check out the link in our bio. See you next time. Goodbye. And challenge.